Welcome to the Bible Unbound, the book of Revelation. My name is Jim, and I'm your host for this podcast episode. Today, we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. We're going to make an emphasis on the question of, did Jesus have a near-death experience? So the reason that question is relevant is because we are talking about eternity. We're talking about timelessness. We're emphasizing those words within the text, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Also the phrase, I am he who is, who was, and is to come. So I think you'll find this episode quite interesting, and I'm happy that you've chosen to join us. So here's our material, and this will be, once again, a live class, so you're going to hear background noise. Just welcome to the classes if you're one of our participants. Good good morning, everybody. Welcome to class. So we want to enter into this uh, this section, verses 4 through 8. Uh, considering the Trinitarian uh, greeting. See if you can identify the Trinity in these words. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to God and and priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's take it first of all from the standpoint of the introduction of the Father. You see that in verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. Let's take that first phrase. From him, from the one who is, who is. That's the present tense verb of being. In the Greek, it's ego, emi, I am. In the Hebrew, it's something like acha, which has morphed into Yahweh. It's the proper name of God. But it's also a designation of his what, what theologians call aseity, or independence of existence. He is not dependent upon anything outside of himself for existence. Everything else in creation, every man, animal, bug, plant, living thing, is dependent upon another for its existence. God alone in the universe is independent. He is the eternal I am. And where is where would that where would that concept be taken from? Where do you think John may have dropped the loop of his uh, weaver's hook to get that idea? 
I am, or I am the eternally existent one. Now, the next section of this designation, who was and who is to come, that's really not found as a self-declared identity concept of Yahweh. The word Yahweh is used all through the Old Testament as that engagement with the personal God, but he's never, he never calls himself the one who is and who was and who is to come. That was and is to come concept, John's getting that from somewhere else. So, as I stated before, the Roman god Jupiter and the Greek god Zeus, they were worshipped in pagan idolatry uh, just, just like you and I would sing. We sang Sunday, lifted up our voices to Yahweh, and to Christ, and to the Holy Spirit. That's what they did. They sang too. And one of their songs was in an ode to Zeus. That's a, a hymn of honor declaration. And, and it's called the Doves of Dondana. You can look it up and it's, it's very clear that the primary um, refrain in that song that pagans would sing was Zeus who is Zeus who was and Zeus who is to come. John seems to be declaring with a boldness right into the face of that pagan idolatry. The Zeus that you think has all these attributes, that's the one I'm preaching to you. Paul did the same thing in Acts 17. Very similar. Borrowed from the culture, proclaimed the truth of Christ back in their face in a language that they would find familiar. And so John is just borrowing from the day. And in so doing, he's introducing, guess who? The Ahiah, the Yahweh, who after speaking to Moses at the burning bush, goes to Egypt and judges ten times. Who? The gods of the Egyptians. And then what does he do right on the face of that? He delivers his people. So John's referring to the Yahweh, the God who delivers and who redeems and who judges. The God who judges and the God who redeems. That's who John is pointing to right here. The one who is, who was, and who is to come. And the interesting thing is that as John is is unpacking this, suddenly, and, and you'll find this throughout the book of Revelation, Suddenly, John sneaks in and seamlessly weaves into the narrative somebody else who has the same attributes. So in in verse 8, John adds an additional phrase to the one who was, the one who who is, the one who was and is to come. He adds this phrase, verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Okay, that's an important addition. We have Yahweh, the picture of Yahweh. We have this statement borrowed probably from pagan idolatry. And then suddenly we have this additional attribute. I am the Alpha and the Omega. 
So in using Alpha and Omega, he's borrowing some strong language from the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 44, he seems to dip his rod into Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last beside me. There is no God. Isaiah 48, uh, verse 12. Uh, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. So again, John leaning into his Old Testament narrative, and he's utilizing and incorporating the God who delivers and redeems, and then the the Redeemer of Isaiah, and he's bringing in these strong statements, beginning and the end, Alpha and Omega, first and the last. And then suddenly, it's at this point where another individual is seamlessly woven into his description of Yahweh. I have it on your notes. John states in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. So we're going to jump up just a little bit. Verse 17, when I saw him, that's in reference to Jesus. He's just had a massive vision of Jesus, which we're going to get into in the uh, couple weeks to come. But when he saw him, it says, I fell at his feet as though dead. We don't see that kind of stuff much in our churches these days. We don't really sense this gravity of thinking that Christ is in our midst. If we had more of a John-style IMAX theater description of Jesus In our churches, there would be more solemnity and humility and reverence and awe. We don't have a lot of that. John falls at his feet as dead. And we don't have those kind of visions of Christ. But as we're going to see in weeks to come, pieces of this great vision that John has in Revelation 1 are splintered off and are deposited into every one of the letters to the seven churches. That's a way of saying all the churches participate in this glorious vision. When John turns and sees the vision of Christ, he falls down at his feet as dead. And what does Jesus answer him? He laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Oh, wait a minute. That's what Yahweh was saying about himself. In verses 4 and verse 8, why is Jesus taking ownership of this title in verse 17? Because John in his vision is seeing Christ seamlessly woven into the narrative as the deliverer the Redeemer, and the Judge. So we're going to see an Exodus reflection throughout the book of Revelation, especially when you get to, for example, the trumpets and the bowl judgments, seven trumpets, seven bowls. What do they affect? Where are their judgments pointing to? And you find yourself always going back to the judgment of the gods of Egypt. 
And that's where John seems to be weakness. And now all of a sudden the picture becomes clear. It's Christ who is our deliverer and our redeemer and the one who, because of his infinite power, delivers us and judges our enemies. And what have I said the theme of the book of Revelation is again and again and again? Revelation of Jesus Christ, triumphant with his church over the powers of darkness. We see it right here. Okay, so I got a question for you. Um, We are seeing one attribute of God being prominent, put on display. Now we know God's attributes would be things like his um, justice, his love, uh, his omnipresence, omnipotence. But here in this section, everything we've seen so far this morning, there's one element, one attribute that comes to surface above any of the others. Now you'll see in other places, like for example, Revelation 4, where another one of his attributes, that in that case it's holiness, comes to four. But that's not the case here. The case here is that one of his attributes comes to prominence in the words beginning, end, alpha, omega, first and last, timelessness, the eternality of God. As Moses says in Psalm 90, you, Lord, are our dwelling place through all generations, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Moses Delivering two million or so of the Jews, 40 years in the desert. He had, uh, if you do the math, about 960 uh, funerals a week. You can imagine that. I don't say presided personally over every one of them. There's no way he could have. But that's the kind of death roll, death march that he was seeing because that generation of Israelites was condemned to death in the wilderness. It would only be the subsequent generation and Joshua and Caleb who would be allowed to enter. And so he's seeing all this death. And so he's talking to us. And later in that psalm, he says, for our lives are 70 years, or if by reason of strength, 80. And their strength is but weakness. They're like a flower that fades and like the grass that withers. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Maybe some of you remember a movie that came out in 2011. It was called In Time. Everybody see that movie? In Time. It was about how instead of money as the currency, time was the currency. And so you had a, like a digital readout on your, on your arm, and it had a display. It, it had a display of the time you had left. And so anybody could look and see. And, and you could add to that. You could accumulate more time by working. Uh, but... Um, You know, at some point, you're going to run out of time. And, of course, the elite who lived in the center of the earth, they had all the time. And you get out further and further in the outskirts of the the existence of humanity, and suddenly you got these poor people who just, you know, maybe 24 hours. But imagine living with that. Imagine living with that kind of reality. We are spared that. How many of us know the exact hour? Like, for example... The guy used to sit right over there, Clay, in our class. He didn't think that when he hung that piece of drywall that day that he would all of a sudden be launched into the next world. He didn't know that his time 
clock had reached zero. And he went to a far better place. That transition from time to timelessness is kind of what we feel in this section because Jesus states to John in verse 18, I was dead and now I am alive and I hold the keys to death and to Hades. Like I'm in control of this thing called time, of destiny. And so you've got this, this, this thought of all this time versus timelessness and the deliverance from time to timelessness, the transition. And for his children, that transition is wonderful. Let me just reference some place that we're going to go. In Revelation chapter 10, John sees this great angel who's, who's clothed with clouds. He's got a giant rainbow, and his face is like the sun. And he's so large, so massive, that he plants one foot in the sea, one foot in the land, and he calls out. And what does he call out? He says, I'm here to tell you that time And the Greek word is chronos, it's time. It's the subsequent logical chronology of events. Time is done. There's no more. In the very next verse, it says, then the seventh trumpet began to sound because the end of God's mystery has come to pass. What a solemn moment. What do you guys, what do you guys think of that kind of transition? You're going to go through it. You're going to experience it. There's, there's a study that's done by the International Organization of Near-Death Studies, the I-O-N-D-S. They say that 17% of, the, of people have what's called a near-death experience. I used to think near-death experiences were kind of kooky. Because a number of books, crazy books, had been written about little boy went to heaven, and I still think a lot of that is just crap job, just kind of out there. It's a way to sell books. But when a scientific organization, uh, an organization that deals with empirical data, will present certain things like that 17% of people have near-death experiences, and then it will uh, bring out, like in, in my case I have eight, eight common experiences of people who, who have near-death experiences. So these are, uh, these are eight characteristic that the IANDS has come up with, people who've had near-death experiences. So listen to these. This is verbatim from their website. Intense emotions, commonly of profound peace, well-being, love, but others are marked by fear, horror, and loss. That's the first one. So the next one would be a perception of seeing one's body from above. That's called an out-of-body experience, or OBE. Sometimes watching medical resuscitation efforts or moving instantaneously to other places. Rapid movement through darkness, often towards an indescribable light. 
or a sense of being somewhere else in a landscape that may seem like a spiritual realm or world, incredibly rapid, sharp thinking and observations, an encounter with deceased loved ones, possibly sacred figures, Jesus or a saint, or unrecognized beings with whom communication is mind to mind. And these figures may seem on the one hand consoling, but on the other hand loving or terrifying. In other words, a life review, reliving actions and feeling their emotional impact on others. Another one, in some cases, a flood of knowledge about life and the nature of the universe. Let's ask the question, did Jesus ever have an NDE? In Luke chapter 12, this is what Jesus says. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He lived with a constant distress of the moment of the cup. That moment was projected throughout his ministry, and he lived, he breathed, he went to bed every night, he woke up every morning with this IMAX theater of the cup and the cross and the pain and the agony of, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It is finished. He lived with that as the IMAX near-death experience of his entire ministry. He saw it. And because of his love, he endured it. A perpetual near-death experience. But that's not all. At a couple different points in his ministry, he invited his hearers into a near-death experience. Let me quote out of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day into the IMAX of the soul. In that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What we have in the book of Revelation, I don't want to scare you, are frequent visitations into the IMAX of the near-death experience. But because you are his children, you will see the scene presented before you as Revelation 7. I saw a great multitude that no man could number from every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation under heaven. And they began to sing and to cry out with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who has bought us from all nations of the earth. And they are comforted. And God is their comfort. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. You'll see that. You'll see Revelation 19. You're invited 
to be the bride without spot and without blemish or any other thing. And you're presented before the lamb at the great marriage supper of the lamb. You'll be invited into the IMAX of Revelation 20, where Satan is cast into the pit and the lake of fire forever and ever. You see these great IMAX moments where you're invited, just like those recipients of the seven letters, they're in Asia Minor, who were facing persecution, who were facing uh, poverty, who were facing suffering of every kind. They were given entrance to the IMAX. They were all given tickets. Come on in, look at this. And there's the beauty of God, God of Exodus, Yahweh, I am that I am, is both judging and delivering. Judging and delivering. That's our God. And that's how he presents himself in the first chapter of of Revelation. Well, that wraps things up for this episode of the Bible Unbound podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it, and we do hope you have a very blessed day in the Lord. Bye-bye.